from the school um, participating in this panel. Let me introduce them, uh, starting on your, your left. Uh, Kevin Corbett is Chief Operating Officer of the Empire State Development Corporation, which was directed by Governor Pataki to organize a civic alliance to lead the economic recovery in New York following the World Trade Center attacks. Kevin was in the Mid-Career Fellows Program at the Woodrow Wilson School in 1993-94. And to his left um, is Heather Lowe Ruth, uh, who is a finance and public policy consultant and former president and CEO of the Bond Market Association. Heather received an MPA from Princeton in 1967, and she is the first woman ever to have received an MPA from the school. I should note that um, since 1988, there have been more women than men in the MPA program. Uh, in the school. Making up for lost. <laughs> Indeed. And to her left, um, we have uh, Jack Kruskoff, who is the Chief Program Officer for the 9-11 United Services Group, which is coordinating the New York Social Service Organizations assisting people affected by the September 11th tragedy. Jack received an MPA from Princeton in 1965. Going straight on along, uh, Tony Shores is Deputy Chancellor and Chief Operating Officer of the New York City Board of Education. He has responsibilities for policy direction and management of the daily operations of the largest school system in the nation. Tony received an MPA from Princeton in 1967. And finally, Jim Ruth um, is President of Intrafinance and Chair of the Woodrow Wilson School Advisory Council. He's the former Executive Director of New Jersey Healthcare Facilities Financing Authority and former Managing Director of Merrill Lynch White Well Capital Markets Group. Jim received an MPA from Princeton in 1967. Let me now turn it over to the panel. You can speak from there or come and stand. Why don't we do it in the same order that, um, that you were introduced? I don't know if we want to use the yes. mic. Or yeah, mic. because people can't see through this yeah. thing. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, I guess as the only government uh, representative on the panel, I'm the easy one to take shots at. Um, <laughs> I think one is, for some who don't know, Empire State Development was, uh, when uh, George Pataki became governor, put together a lot of different uh, state agencies under one umbrella, uh, things like the Job uh, Development Authority, uh, Urban Development Corporation, um, and unlike most uh, Department of Economic Development, Department of Tourism, uh, unlike most states, we also have uh, economic development agencies because of the Urban Development Corporation, we have uh, unusual powers of condemnation, uh, unlike other, uh, we can condemn, uh, take down buildings, and then settle any of the legal disputes afterwards, non if they're non-residential buildings. We have some various subsidiaries, such as uh, using those powers, such as the 42nd Street uh, Redevelopment Corporation that did the redevelopment. We've done the redevelopment of 42nd Street over the last uh, seven, eight years. Um, and the Lower Manhattan Development Corp is a subsidiary of uh, Empire State Development Corporation. Um, and, of course, Lower Manhattan Development Corp has been the focus, uh, focal agency for the redevelopment of the uh, World Trade Center site in Lower Manhattan. Um, I think a couple of the, the facts, everyone certainly is aware of a lot of the issues, but um, from our perspective, on uh, September 12th, the governor uh, directed us to be in charge of the economic uh, recovery. We have the state and federal emergency management organizations together with the New York City Fire and Police that were doing the actual emergency. But the economic impact of Lower Manhattan is the nation's third largest central business district, as well as, you know, there was a growing residential population in Battery Park and elsewhere. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a broad uh, array of other institutions in, in Lower Manhattan. 
But clearly the, the first uh, thoughts in the first days uh, were all the senior executives uh, of, say, American Express, Lehman, Merrill, all the, you know, is what they needed to do to survive. Some were well, better prepared because I think of the uh, millennium fear, uh, you know, with emergency plans and whatnot. But there was no, there was no template for um, this, this kind of disaster. Um, the uh, net effect of the attack, uh, practically from a business perspective, the economic recovery, um, is that we had uh, over 20 million square feet uh, lost or damaged. Uh, we figured there were roughly 145,000, 150,000 jobs that were displaced and lost. Um, the fiscal impact, uh, you know, was profound both on the city and state. Uh, I think everyone's well aware of uh, the uh, what has happened to tourism and the airlines. Um, of course, tourism is the second largest industry in New York State and is a critical uh, part of the New York City's economy. Um, so we're dealing dealing with all those issues uh, sort of in a uh, reaction. In the first few months, was um, we set up emergency relief centers uh, for walk-in. You know, telephone communication was horrible. Um, so we set up offices downtown together with the city and in the uh, governor's office at 633 3rd Avenue. Um, and we started with a number first just to get a central database for all the businesses that were affected. What, you know, what are they affected? What were their needs? And initially, most of the needs were either getting back into their building or finding some space or just being able to get up and running or they lost files. If they were a larger company that, you know, they were scattering all over trying to find space to get their operations up. And it went from that to what do we need to do to actually restore, um, to get people to, there was a flight that we were, saw for a while from lower Manhattan, psychological but also practical from, from a business aspect. And um, I would say certainly in the early months there was a genuine fear that uh, lower Manhattan would be a ghost town. Um, it was clear American Express was very, uh, you know, one of the major uh, tenants at Battery Park City, and we sort of saw it the uh, Battle of Battery Park uh, City. Um, Lehman Brothers decided to go to Midtown, uh, New York, and Merrill and American Express said they don't want to, they didn't want to be alone in downtown New York, and uh, they were actively looking in Midtown. Um, I think the we've been able to stabilize, make a lot of efforts to get companies to stay in the short term, but and we have uh, a, a, the uh, lot, there's been a lot of attention paid to the twenty billion dollars uh, plus that uh, Washington has delivered. Um, and there are a lot of, uh, I won't, in the, the short time allowed, I won't go into the breakdown, but uh, some of that, uh, about $2.7 billion was given in uh, HUD block grant funds for us for uh, economic, uh, to take care of the uh, business uh, aspects and uh, the community aspects, um, uh, aside from just the cleanup and whatnot. And um, the focus on that has been to, uh, frankly, the next three, five, or more years, very, Lower Manhattan is not going to be a convenient place for businesses to be, and we needed to attract uh, a lot of those businesses to stay down in Lower Manhattan and hopefully now attract more companies to come back as they see the progress, remarkable progress that's been made. Um, the um, focus, though, beyond you know, grants and incentives for companies to stay, and small businesses particularly, two-thirds of the Half the jobs in Lower Manhattan are, come from the top 145 companies with more than 200 employees, but the um, balance of the um, you know business down there, the other roughly 50 percent of the workforce, is comes from over 11,000 uh, small smaller businesses with less than 200 employees, and that hits the restaurants and, and uh, quite a few other uh, you know the smaller businesses that feed off the big uh, the larger companies.
So two-thirds of the money we're putting out is to uh, help with the smaller businesses. But other than stabilizing and helping those businesses in the short term, the long-term um, effort uh, really is to get the transportation and the infrastructure right. I think most of the people that we've talked to, the businesses and the, and the residents as well, they don't want, they're not looking for to make the area cheap. They want to have it better than it was on 9-11. And the focus, we've been spending a lot of time really, is to get, to have a, sort of like the Chicago fire. We have a unique opportunity to rebuild lower Manhattan and get the infrastructure that dates back to late 19th century or early 20th century to really have some major transportation and infrastructure projects to, to um, and make it a you know, much more vibrant and more convenient place to get to. Um, I think there are a number of other issues, and when we get the questions and answers that tie into you know, efforts with the tourism and other, uh, other issues that I'd uh, be glad to um, speak about. Certainly, uh, for those who are the uh, MPAs and whatnot, the uh, experience, one of the things particularly looking at uh, Jose Goldenberg's class on um, dealing with uh, NGOs and the relationship with the economy and environment, a lot of the uh, work that I did there was interestingly portable. And it was not a, it's not something that related to 9-11 that you prepared for, but a lot of the work we did, say, with the Regional Plan Authority and working getting a civic alliance that was, uh, New York is famous for its fighting. If you have 80 people in a room, you'll have 80 fights. Um, and one of the things we did, really realizing that the state and the city did not have the resources, uh, adequate resources to deal with all the issues that were coming up, was to draw from the civic community, and particularly with the uh, New York City Partnership on the business side, but the Regional Plan Association that was instrumental in working with us and getting all the civic groups to work uh, in a concerted fashion as possible, and it was uh, remarkably more successful and helpful than we uh, Envisioned, uh, it would have expected, and I think a lot of the groundwork in building those relationships with the NGOs beforehand uh, allowed us to have good relationships uh, at 9/11 and afterwards to be able to uh, capitalize and make a lot more progress in uh, New York than anybody I think in Washington and elsewhere would have uh, thought possible. So um, that, that's sort of the overview. There are a lot of you know, and to say in 10 minutes what I've been doing for the last eight months uh, is a little tough. But uh, Heather. Uh, Actually, Kevin, you did a great job of summarizing. I'm going to try to do the same thing. Um, I figured just for comparative advantage, um, mainly comparative disadvantage, given some of the other people on the panel, what I would do is, um, is give you a really brief summary of the New York City budget situation. Um, this, there will be no test afterwards, so I'm going to be pretty general. Uh, and just to try to give you, you know, a, a concept. Um, in short, um, in February, uh, there was an estimated budget deficit coming up for the next fiscal year in New York City of $4 billion. And um, it's subsequently begun $5 billion, and perhaps it will grow larger than that. Um, this is um, a really serious gap, obviously, in a budget that will end this year at about $41 billion. Um, part of that is because of 9-11. And part of it is because, um, in fact, just as the country uh, was, the New York City economy was also beginning to go into the tank even before 9-11. And it's kind of hard to figure out how much of that is 9-11 and how much of that is uh, a, a normal economic cycle. In any case, um, 
this the, the, the fiscal year of New York City is a is a July 1st to June 30th um, uh, fiscal year, and at the end of this fiscal year coming up, um, there's an there will be an estimated 22 million dollar surplus uh, in the city's budget. Um, but in the meantime, the city will also have run through a three billion dollar uh, reserve. So. In, in current terms, in fact, this year's budget is also uh, in deficit. We could quibble about why the reserves aren't greater, especially given how good the economy in New York uh, has been over the last uh, several years, but I'm not here to bash Rudy. And the truth of it is that in any democratic system, particularly one that, uh, that tends to have a fairly substantial liberal um, constituency, as New York City does, it's just extraordinarily difficult to build up surpluses in good times or bad. Um, and um, look at the federal government, for example, which I can't say is, is liberal-leaning. Um, in any case, I have a confession um, beyond the fact that I actually voted for Mike Bloomberg, not just because he's a long-term business associate, but uh, for, for other reasons of disaffection, let's put it that way. Um, but I, my other conf confession is that I was actually here the day Bloomberg put out his executive budget, which is the sort of first budget plan, and I had the nerve not that I planned it this way, to make comments on the city's budget the day he put it out from down here. And I'm on the record as having said, given six hours to look at it or something before I gave my little talk, that I thought it was pretty brilliant. So I want to explain why and then make some comments about what I think has happened since. There were three things that caused me to give it such uh, uh, high regard, quite apart from the fact that the guy's a friend of mine. First of all, it didn't mask anything, or at least it didn't mask much, especially in contrast with what Governor Pataki had just put out for the state. Um, I mean, it really sort of spoke to the fact that this is a really serious fiscal crisis, and we're not going to solve it this year. And for the first time since the fiscal crisis of the 70s, with which some of us have uh, had some experience, um, uh, there was just really no clear way to do it. It was essentially the mayor, the new mayor, saying um, about the future, I don't know. We don't know. And the evidence of that was uh, a huge piece of borrowing for the first time actually in the budget of then, at that point, about $1.5 billion. In other words, about 38% of the problem, as he would have measured it then, was being solved by borrowing. Nobody had done that since the fiscal crisis without a plan as to how you were going to uh, get out of it. Second reason I thought it was pretty good was that at that point, all the specified service reductions were remarkably even-handed. Um, by that, I don't mean that they were uh, unprioritized, but basically uh, he took on everybody just a little bit. Um, and he specifically targeted things that are the kinds of services that New York City for a long time has given that most other similarly situated cities do not. So that, um, so that it established um, a sort of even playing field um, for the negotiations and bargaining that you would expect to happen after the executive budget came out. I mean, everybody had something to regain. Every ha everybody had a lot to lose in the subsequent process of the budget. 
The third reason I thought it was pretty good was that there were no new taxes now, and that he took a fairly form, firm stand against new taxes. Now, there are two reasons why I think that's a good idea. The first are political. This is an election year in New York. Uh, he has is a recently switched Republican. He needs the support of the governor. The governor is, expect, is a Republican and is expected to win. Um, and, um, as most of you know, as in many cities, but especially in New York City, uh, you can't get any taxes without the support of the state legislature. Not just the support, they have to enact them. So in an election year with a Republican governor, a Republican Senate, a Democratic Assembly, and a new Republican governor, to, to put together a budget with a whole bunch of new taxes in it um, is just playing with smoke and mirrors. It's never going to happen. Uh, so that's one good reason, one reason I would credit him for not having, he, he didn't put in, by the way, the, a very large cigarette tax, um, but, um, uh, and, and he may not get that, but, but nevertheless, uh, otherwise, no new taxes, at least in the original budget. That, so those are the political reasons I think it's good. Um, there are also economic reasons. And here I have to say that, you know, we all know the, the, the two dicta. One is, you know, don't repeat history, learn from it. And the other is make sure that you don't merely learn the lessons of the last war. And in, in, in that respect, I may be, um, I may be vulnerable. Um, an awful lot of people who used to be kind of pro-tax, pro-services in New York in the 60s, in the early 70s and so on, uh, learned the lesson of the fiscal crisis that you can tax too much and that it really does impact uh, economic development. Um, so there are, I think, some good economic reasons um, for resisting uh, broad-based taxes. I will say, however, though, that the fact that somehow in the last four years we lost the commuter tax is a travesty. Boy, would we like it back now. No way to get it back in a year that, uh, that the governor's running. What else? Um, I think that um, I should address now, you know, the sort of issue, am I disappointed uh, now that it's no longer February and, in fact, it's June? And the answer is yes. I'm less disappointed in the mayor than I am disappointed that for somehow the process of bargaining uh, of resolution, of moving toward what the actual budget will be for the coming year, uh, has really not gone very far. I mean, it's not as though things haven't happened, um, but it's, we're still really kind of at an impasse. In the meantime, of course, the budget deficit has estimated, the estimated budget deficit has gone from four to five billion dollars at least. The Financial Control Board staff estimates that there's about $1.7 billion worth of risk in the current budget being discussed, and that includes both economic downside risk and also risks like the fact that the cigarette tax may never be enacted. Um, and we really still are kind of at an, at an impact. Realizing that, um, as Kevin's already pointed out, New York is famous for having <coughs> multifaceted views, uh, but if I could just very generally su summarize what kinds of criticisms this original proposal and even the sort of more current modification has, has received from, um, from uh, interests in New York and characterize them in as sort of moderately left pro-service, particularly pro-social and human services, and moderately right pro-business or whatever. Those are very general categories. The criticisms on the moderate left, including most members of the city council, for example, two-thirds of whom are new, thanks to term limits, 
uh, is that uh, that the mayor is talking about too many service cuts. You have to restore services. You have to restore particularly services of the elderly, families, education, and uh, neighborhood projects of the sort that they care a great deal about. Uh, so that's on one hand. On the moderately right-hand side, or the sort of business side, which might be uh, typified by the Partnership or uh, the Citizens Budget Commission, both of which I'm members of, though I haven't been very active this year, um, the the story has been, uh, the criticisms have been, number one, don't borrow so much. It's too risky. Bring the borrowing under a billion dollars at least. Number two, you've got to reduce headcount. Uh, pointing out that of the estimated right now $1.9 billion worth of proposed service cuts, only a small fraction of those, 15%, are oriented toward reducing headcount. Number three, um, be more open-minded about taxes, and please let us get the computer tax back, maybe not this year or at least next year. And fourth, have a plan for the future. Um, In conclusion, I would say, uh, no one really knows what the future is, which is basically the same thing that Bloomberg's first budget said. It really depends on the economy, uh, which other people are going to talk about, and Kevin's already all started about. I mean, we really don't know what the recovery from 9-11 hit alone and, 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 the, and the, if you will, more natural economic recovery of New York City is going to begin, uh, is going to be. Um, and um, I, I, my guess is that there's sort of about a year to figure out how we're really going to pull this off in New York because there's no implicit plan in any of the budgets being talked about right now about what you do about next year's deficit, which would be presumably at least $6 billion. So this problem is not going away. I will say one last thing, and that is it's about debt. Um, I've spent a whole lot of my career being a, an anti-deficit uh, uh, maven advocate, particularly in the New York City context, um, principally in my role as MAC uh, at the Municipal Assistance Corporation um, uh, for three years, uh, but also 15 years serving on the Financial Control Board. By the way, I'm the only person, having said some positive things about Republicans here, I'm the only person that I'm aware of who's been fired twice by Governor Pataki from a job that didn't pay anything, and it was the same job. <laughs> and I think there was a mistake there. But when the letter arrived again, you know, I was, it was, Jim and I laughed a lot. <laughs> um, so I, I was fired from the Financial Control Board four years ago. And then again this month, last month. Um, but for, if, then of course I went to the Bond Market Association where, where I, was, I was a responsible debt person because as one of my favorite chairman of the Bond Market Association once said, it's all about volume and spread. So, you know, bad times are not necessarily bad, particularly in the municipal business. Um, but in any case, um, from somebody who's sort of lived through the New York City fiscal crisis and the process of trying to get out of that crisis of the mid-'70s, this is the first time anybody has talked about solving a New York City budget deficit, in effect, or, or, or gap coming up, by just straightforwardly saying, hello, we're going to solve 38% of the problem by issuing debt. And for some of us who've been around, that it just gives me goosebumps to even think that anybody could get away with that, especially since the rating agencies have not blinked. I mean, the only way to explain that is 9-11. I mean, it has completely redefined the terms, and in some sense, it has wiped out um, 25 years of of um, consensus 
about the rules under which you operate. And I can't wait to what, to what I hope, Tony, you'll speak to that as well. Since, I mean, can, can you believe it? Mark Page can't believe it. I mean, they have not blinked. Anyway, uh, I look forward to what everybody else says. I'm going to resist taking some of the bait that Heather uh, put out there, especially that the service cuts have been even-handed, but we'll argue about that uh, later. Some of the children's advocates, I think, and human service advocates might argue somewhat about it. It's great to be back, even though we can't go wade in the pool because they're fixing it yet again. I don't know. Uh, but it's good to, to see friends and... and uh, to be here, um, and good to be on a panel moderated by uh, Jimmy Trussell. We, we worked a little bit on the PPIA program when I was a, a dean previously at the, the New School, and it's great to hear that the program is still going and that Princeton is putting resources into it to, to keep it going, even though the Ford Foundation uh, has pulled back. Oh. I thought I'd do uh, three things. Um, one, talk about the unprecedented uh, response to September 11th and to the human service needs that uh, were created by it. Secondly, talk about some of the mechanisms that were put in place, coordinating mechanisms uh, among social service providers. And third, uh, what have we learned or what are we still learning from that that uh, might apply to either future events, if we have to contend with future events, or uh, for the social service system more broadly, at least in, in New York. Uh, obviously, the attack was was unprecedented and, and uh, a scope no one could have uh, contemplated before it happened. Uh, and in many ways, the charitable response was also unprecedented. I think the count is about $2.7 billion in giving that occurred through a whole variety of means. And, and there is still some money coming in, the Red Cross announced a plan at the end of January to spend all the rest of its money, and since then they've gotten another $112 million uh, paid in. So now they need a new plan to, to spend some more money. Um, so it's, it, there, there's a, there are tremendous resources that the uh, human service agencies have had to apply to the great needs that came out of this. Uh, and the response has been quite creative on the part of uh, a lot of the social service agency. Normally in a disaster, uh, the response is primarily by the Red Cross, which responds to every kind of disaster, natural and, and something like this, which is certainly not natural, and uh, by FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Agency, which is the key governmental agency that responds. And, and uh, they organize and orchestrate uh, whatever goes on. That has not been the case uh, in New York. There's much, been a much wider participation by social service agencies, much more money available uh, beyond what the Red Cross collected, and uh, much of that has been channeled through something called the September 11th Fund, which was created by the New York Community Trust, a community foundation in New York that existed, and by United Way of New York City. Uh, and that vehicle has had uh, about $500 million to spend uh, overall and has done it through a, a wide range of nonprofit and community organizations. And then there are a whole bunch of additional uh, funds. There literally are hundreds of, uh, in fact, more than a 1,000 organizations that, that have collected money and have spent it either directly or through 
other vehicles on trying to respond to the needs. And, of course, that's created a need for some innovation in management and coordination of all the activities. And, and this has not been a perfect process. In fact, you probably have to use the word chaotic to describe the process, but it's been a very responsive process. Uh, immediately after the attack, there were mechanisms put in place initially at an armory on Park Avenue and, and uh, Lexington Avenue and 20, 26th Street, and then very shortly after that at a pier on the Hudson River, and uh, now that's been closed down, and there, there's, uh, there's a place at 51st and Lexington for families, and until about a month and a half ago, there was, there was a center for displaced workers, uh, two centers for displaced workers in the downtown area near City Hall, and each of those... Uh, Locations had multiple agencies involved, governmental and nonprofit, working together in ways that they'd never worked together previously. Uh, the organization that I work for, uh, the 9-11 United Services Group, is a newly created entity. It was set up at the end of December by 13 of the major social service agencies and umbrellas in New York specifically to try to coordinate activities. Um, Red Cross, Salvation Army, uh, something called Safe Horizon. Those of you who know New York know it. It used to be called the Victim Service Agency. Uh, had not dealt with disasters before, but uh, because it's a crime victim agency, uh, and this was a crime, they responded in a, in a very large way and got support from the September 11th Fund and have, have grown into uh, one of the major providers, uh, along with the Red Cross, in dealing with the needs coming coming out of this. So there was an agency that was ready to innovate and, and respond and did so. And then uh, other parts of the 9-11 United Services Group are the religiously based uh, social service agencies in New York, which are very important to the ongoing social services uh, system, the Catholic Charities, Federation of Protestant Welfare Agencies, United Jewish Appeal, um, and then the settlement houses and the ethnic federation, the Asian American Federation, Hispanic Federation, black agency executives, and the Mental Health Association. And while that doesn't encompass all of the social uh, service community, those umbrellas do bring in a lot of the major agencies. Now, the motivation for this, you would like to think, was purely the agencies saying, yeah, we need to get together because there's so much to be done and we don't want to uh, make it harder for the victims of this crime and their families uh, to... Uh, uh, to get the assistance they need, but it was really the public criticism by the Attorney General, Elliot Spitzer, that uh, galvanized the action. The agencies had been meeting and they saw the need, but it was really Spitzer's criticism, I think, <clears throat> excuse me, that, that made, uh, made it happen uh, the way it would happen. The, the CEO of the organization is an investment banker named Bob Hurst, who's the vice chairman of Goldman Sachs, who's pro bono leading the organization, giving a substantial portion of his time to it. And he, there's quite a few other pro bono people from uh, investment banking and, and the corporate world uh, generally from uh, a lot of assistance from IBM and Ogilvy and uh, 
uh, SCADNARPs, and a whole bunch of organizations, and the culture clash between the investment bankers' approach to problems and the social service world approach to problems is is both fascinating to watch and and actually I think quite productive. And uh, somebody should write this up from uh, somebody in the school ought to take a look at this one. But it, but um, the investment banking world wants to make things happen very quickly. They focus on a problem. They throw all their resources into it. They get something done, and then they want to move on. You know, that's finished. The social services world deals with problems that are long-term, intractable. They're used to staying with them forever. And, um, and, and so if there's a lot of process involved and things move slowly, that's all right, because they know they're dealing with issues that are going to take a long time to contend with. And, and uh, somehow, so far, I think something productive is coming out of the mix. Um, We've created a network of service coordinators who are, uh, who are the case managers for all the different groups affected, the, the families of the people who were killed and deceased, the displaced workers, the residents in the downtown area who were affected, injured people, and so on. And uh, these, the, the workers have different titles and different agencies, but uh, the generic is the service coordinators. And this was a decision made early on, even to some extent before the, uh, the organization was created. McKinsey and Company, which, of course, a premier um, uh, consulting firm, had done a substantial amount of work pro bono, and they've continued to assist us pro bono. But their first recommendation was, forget about all these social service agencies, hire these case managers directly in a new organization and deploy them, control them, get it done. Uh, the decision was made that isn't going to work in New York because you have these very strong social service agencies uh, there. Uh, they have the resources, uh, and, uh, and you've got to work through them. So the service coordinators are all employees of uh, the existing agencies, but we're trying to create a, a constituency with some common... <laughs> Uh, uh, common elements to it through training so that they all know the benefits if they work for the Red Cross. They also know what Safe Horizon and Catholic Charities offer and they can represent for the people they're trying to assist uh, all of the possible resources that they need. Uh, there also has been a good bit of technology put in place. hasn't yet borne as much fruit as I hope it will. That's a whole other story about what does it take to, to use technology effectively in this. But um, there's a referral network that's electronic that allows a, a, a service coordinator to look up for a particular type of client, what benefits are available, uh, and make efficient referrals. Um, so then, and and other mechanisms, so that there there is now a constituency out there might have some interesting application in the social service system more broadly, since these are workers that are, that aren't just working for their own agency, which is the tradition in New York to have a lot of separate fiefdoms doing things, but have a broader perspective across a lot of the the system. So, what are some of the lessons uh, learned from this? Um, one is that the impact is very widespread in a city like New York. It's not just uh, the immediate uh, families of the victims, not just the people who live in the area, not just the school kids that went to schools near the World Trade Center, but it's a, it's a very broad effect 
the, the studies, Tony may be talking about this, so I won't say a lot about it, but on school kids is a citywide effect. Uh, the economic effects are clearly citywide, and some of the guidelines that were put in place immediately drew hard geographic boundaries. Below Canal Street, if you work there, you get a lot of assistance. If you worked above Canal Street, tough luck, not nearly as much available for you. Doesn't really make sense, but the funders and the agencies had to make some kind of eligibility decisions early on. I think that might be done differently uh, in the future to try to, to capture the need more effectively. Um, there's clearly a need for good management, and it's not just because good management's uh, you know a decent thing to do. It's because the families have complained bitterly that they've had to file applications for all these different agencies, separate applications, pre present their death certificate 19 times. Somebody told me, and so on and so forth. And you know, th there's a lot of pain involved with this, as well as the inefficiency of the process. So the, a lot can be done, and hopefully will, as a result of some of the focus on this, to get. Uh, uh, more common intake procedures in, in place. We were able to do that in one situation where actually at the phase-out point of a particular kind of financial benefit, we were able to get the Red Cross and Safe Horizon and the Salvation Army all to, to allow one worker from any of those agencies to represent all of them, and uh, Uday Tambar here was involved with some of that, and, and uh, it worked, of course, but it worked at the point when that was being phased out. Um, other, other uh, lessons, I'll uh, conclude with this, are governmental lessons. The government response to this, I think, has been much less adequate than the private sector's uh, response. And of course, I'm a little biased because I've been, although I was in government in the past, I'm working on the private sector side, the nonprofit private sector side in this one. But um, this, in some ways, the city put some good things in effect quickly. Uh, there was something called disaster relief Medicaid put in place, and those of you who have worked in and around the healthcare system know that there are a huge number of uninsured but potentially eligible people in New York. I think the total uninsured in the city is about 1.7 million. And uh, disaster relief Medicaid and, and a companion disaster food stamp program uh, simplified eligibility right after the attacks. And so for a four-month period, somebody could fill out a single-page form, declare their need, and not have to submit the usual documents and, and be subject to the usual long scrutiny. And 380,000 people enrolled in that program. I mean, it's a huge, successful social experiment. The problem is it lasted four months, and now people have to recertify through the regular systems, and I'm sure large numbers of them will be be lost to it. On the federal side, uh, the story is much less uh, and, uh, uh, good, and I'm going to be much less polite. FEMA, which I think probably has done very good work with Kevin and his colleagues on, on cleanup and helping to begin to spark the, the transit and infrastructure reconstruction that's needed, has been, I think, a poor performer on the human services side. They have a, a mortgage and rental assistance program that should be aiding large numbers of the, the displaced workers. They're, they're by some count 70,000 people who are out of jobs as a result of September 11th, and while they've uh, probably 40 plus, 40 to 50,000 of them have gotten charitable assistance from the agencies I mentioned, uh, just 3,000 of them have gotten assistance from uh, FEMA from their mortgage program, and there are a whole lot of reasons for that, including uh, very tight eligibility, poor interpretation, no promotion, uh, Applications being for New York being reviewed in Texas and Virginia, 
and so on. Um, and I think lots of lessons to be learned about how the federal government might respond in a in a future disaster. So um, it's it's been. Uh, I think uh, an experience that that should have some lasting impact on uh, both governmental and social service uh, systems, uh, despite the the tragic elements that are involved in this, uh, some good may come out of it that way. Thanks. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. I spent about 25 years as a relatively newcomer amongst us up here in public service. And the one thing I've learned in the course of that, and that started in my learning that I did here, this is like my whole life has been a giant PA 501 class, has been um, that choices, budget choices, land use choices, policy choices, are ultimately about values. And this site, the problem of the redevelopment of the Trade Center, is going to test and in many ways define the values that what we are about as a city and a region. There are several sets of places on which those choices are going to be made, several kinds of topics, all of which in many ways reflect the integration of things that were Wilson School, economic choices, political choices, in some respects social or arguably even spiritual choices that we've got to make. And I want to talk, if I can, about those a little bit, but I just want to start a little bit with my, uh, I have a personal perspective on this, as I'm sure everyone does, like a lot of the people in this room, obviously I lost uh, friends and colleagues in the disaster, and, and in that sense share what most of us share, but I also spent five and a half years as the chief operating officer of the Port Authority, um, and worked in the building, and spent a lot of my time thinking about the World Trade Center and the meaning of it and its objectives as a development engine uh, for the city and downtown and the region. I marketed the Trade Center around the world, selling its uh, commercial space, its linkage to trade and services, and particularly its role as a global symbol for New York and for the region. I think about this in particular because the first time the Trade Center was attacked in 1993, I was in fact in Osaka uh, marketing the World Trade Center with uh, then Mayor Dinkins, uh, who called me at 3 o'clock in the morning uh, to say there was a problem in my building. And what did I know about it, uh, knowing not much than to turn on CNN? Uh, we figured out quickly we better get back. And we got in the next plane home, and I spent the next six weeks, essentially 18 to 24 hours a day in the basement of that building working on the reconstruction of it, which was difficult in many ways, um, but in, in one respect important because the reconstruction began to test our vision again of what the building and it, the complex and the whole notion of it was about. It tested it in the sense, too, of how we would deal with the, what was then seemed like uh, a very bad thing, a tragedy uh, um, in its way, and how people deal with it. Um, where we, we actually brought in uh, Dick Leone uh, and I brought in some psychotherapists to help us think about the problem from that perspective as well from, as it was explained to us, the, the, the spectrum from, uh, in psycho neurotic, psychological terms, from hysterical to neurotic, meaning people who obsess about this and think about it all the time, to people who are in complete denial. Which actually, uh, jargoning as that sounds, helped us think about the reconstruction, because people who were obsessing about it wanted the building and the site to look extremely different than it had and that helped them deal with their fear. And people who were in denial about it wanted the building to look exactly as it was the day before February 26, 1993 occurred. 
But it led us to think about the role again of the building and how to do redevelopment and, and how it would affect our economy. And, and that's where I want to start a little bit is with the economics of the building and, and of the complex because the economic principles then are the same economic principles now. The choices and the economic issues are incredibly complicated, although, frankly, they're the easiest ones to deal with, and I'll tell you why. Um, I believe the policy objectives of it were relatively clear as an economic development engine for the city and the region. Our goal was to create and retain jobs to maximize the tax base to support the services that we needed. In doing that, we focused then, as I think we'll have to focus now, on what Michael Porter would probably call the traded sectors, what we at the Trade Center then called the export industries, the industries that added value, that brought jobs and economic activity to the region, as contrasted with local industries where we just traded among ourselves and stores or retailers. The strategy, therefore, was to influence the economic decisions, the locational decisions of big businesses. And in doing that, we go back to the same principles lots of us learned in this room, to what Lord Marshall taught us uh, many generations ago, that the keys to locational decisions are labor pooling, specialized inputs, and technology spillovers. And when you think about those principles for New York City, you think about the industries and the kinds of comparative advantages and disadvantages New York is going to always have. We need industries where transportation costs are low because we're a complicated region to move goods through. We need industries where the key input, specialized input, is labor, smart people. And we need industries where technology spillovers are about ideas. And that drives, in many ways, the economic development strategy underlying the Trade Center and much of what we did in Lower Manhattan, which was financial services, business services, information technology, communications. Now, actually, biotech is on the table. Those are all industries that meet those parameters and where New York is likely to have some comparative advantage. And indeed, also industries that create high wage, relatively high wage jobs um, and therefore support higher income and supportive services for their city and the region. The tactics to do this are clear. What drives those labor pool is a culture which helps attract smart people to come to our region and stay in the city. Safety, people need to feel safe and stay in our region, and good commuter transportation so that the one important labor input we have, which is smart people, can get back and forth to those kinds of jobs. And those same principles, in many ways, underlie the redevelopment strategies that we're hearing now about downtown. Uh, culture, uh, move the Guggenheim, see if the New York State Opera can be moved downtown, etc. Safety, uh, whatever we build, make sure people feel safe in it and are comfortable in being around it and make sure the general climate of safety in the city remains as strong as it's been. And transportation, uh, rethink Lower Manhattan's regional transportation hub, which is right now not well linked to the outer ring suburbs of New York. It's designed to be linked to our inner ring suburbs, northern New Jersey, Brooklyn, but not well to Westchester and outer parts of Long Island. So, in some respects, that part of the economic analysis is pretty clear. What it leaves out is the economic analysis needed for the rest of New York City, for the 36% of New York City that is now foreign-born, half the kids in our school system come from, uh, raised by parents born in other countries. And for that population of New York, the biggest single element we need is an, ec is an educational infrastructure that offers those kids and their parents the opportunities to participate in the global economy that we're trying to build in Lower Manhattan. Education and enhancing it is the key not only to giving them economic opportunity, but to bringing a greater sense of equality to a region and a city that is extremely unequal in its distribution of wealth. 
And if there's anything uh, Amartya Sen, a great economist, has taught us, it is that democracy is an economic development strategy. And sound and regions and cities and nations that have better distributions of economic uh, wealth and opportunity are regions that are going to be in the long run stronger economically. So that means we need a balanced development strategy that particularly looks at the disinvestment that the region has made in its schools and colleges and universities over the years and rethinks that. So those are substantive decisions, and they are important and they are complicated, but what we decide is important. How we decide them in many ways is even more important and becomes even more tenuous. How we choose to make those decisions, whether we use models for decision-making that are democratic, that are, in a sense, oligarchic or corporatist, or whether they're just plain old autocratic. Those, there are advantages to each of those, and we need to obviously be open and honest about those, as these has been an issue since Aristotle, right? Recent history illustrates all of them. Jack, in some respects, just referred to those kinds of tensions. The democratic model, which we talk about a lot in Lower Manhattan, is participatory and equitable and open, and there'll be meetings and committees and discussion, and we need to be realistic about those, which are great virtues, as well as the costs of that. Those are slow, cumbersome, they tend not to be good at zero-sum decision-making, those kinds of decision-making processes, and they have a tendency to compromise, to moderation, and ultimately to mediocrity which is, tends to be, as an example on the architectural side, often the product of that kind of process. Plain old boxes. Think about the architecture of Battery Park City. There are other models. There are what, in essence, underlies much decision-making in New York, which is a more corporatist model, where powerful forces come together and make decisions, often um, leaders of New York's uh, business sector. They'll be smarter at making economic decisions, better analytically about it. They often have a longer planning term, uh, planning horizon, and don't look for immediate. But they are, by definition, elitist, um, and, and openly so, and they're often inequitable. And that was much of the debate over both the Trade Center and Battery Park City as to how we would spread the, spread the wealth uh, that those created. And finally, there are autocratic decision-making processes. In many respects, the greatest knock on the Port Authority had been its lack of democratic decision-making. When Austin Tobin and friends made decisions about what built the Port Authority, as Jim Doyd's book would document at great length, um, it was not a great democratic process. But that, too, had virtues. Those were fast decisions. They were often very visionary. It was not, it's not clear to me a committee of 500 people meeting for six months at a time would have built the World Trade Center, for good or for ill. They, they, autocratic decision-making can also have long, great long-term consequences. The Trade Center's great investments in infrastructure that support the region for uh, the Port Authority's uh, investments in the George Washington Bridge, the World Trade Center, the airports, those were all very long-term decisions. They often had bad negative consequences for 10 or 20 years before they began to pay back. Again, participatory democratic processes are going to have trouble making those decisions. So as the Trade Center taught us that our economic infrastructure was weak and dated, we need to think about whether our political infrastructure in the region is adequate and up to this task. Can we afford so many overlapping jurisdictions? It is amazing when you live in New York and you get a mailing from all the governmental and nonprofit jurisdictions that are trying to help people deal with this problem. Can we afford that? 
part of it's the cost, literally, institutions, of course, but part of it is the complexity that follows from that and all of the implications and ultimately the alienation that people have from a government they can't understand. And our government is well into that world of being too complex. So we may need to think about the institutional infrastructure of the region and the city as well. Last, I just want to talk for a second about the sort of uh, social or more spiritual questions that are raised by this site. We have to ask the question, what lessons did we learn, right? What is the lesson that we should then manifest in the reconstruction of all Manhattan? Should we be strong, show them they won't win, build exactly what was there or more? Should we be sensitive to the pain of the people who suffered, whether it's the families or all of us in the city, and consecrate the site, in effect, to uh, what befell them? Should we be forgiving and have a development that is forgiving, in other words, that recognizes what causes the hate that led to this and tries to open its arms to change that through culture, um, through spiritual or even love? And do we look backwards when we do this? Do we build monuments like the Vietnam Memorial on the Mall or Oklahoma City that are in essence about scars, that are holes in the ground and flat? Or, or do we build monuments like pyramids or archways that rise up and try and, and, and raise the spirit rather than acknowledging what happened to us? And how do we comfort the affected? Jack mentioned this briefly. This has obviously had an extraordinary psychological impact on all of us. I obviously think a lot about the impact on the kids. The first phone call I made on September 11th that afternoon was to the same psychiatrist and team that we used in 1993 at the Trade Center. And we brought them in that afternoon of September 11th. We didn't really have much else to do. The Trade Center is in Lower Manhattan, and my office is in Brooklyn. We were not physically affected. We need to start thinking about the kids immediately. So when we had a whole team that we put together to deal with it, but what I just want to talk about for a second was we just finished a study of the impact of this in New York City school children, um, a very elaborate study with the Center for Disease Control and Columbia University and looked at 10,000 kids, and the results give us great pause. This was a very fragile group of kids already. 3% of the children of New York lived in the country uh, that was at war when they came here. 27% of the children in New York City reported, 10,000 children in our sample, that they hadn't seen or knew a family member who had been killed. 39% had seen someone killed or injured at one time in their life. And this is both where they came from and where they are now. And this is the reality of life for most of the children in New York. Then comes September 11th. 3% of the children had a family member hurt or killed. 44% uh, of them had a family member who was uh, somehow affected, meaning had to be part of the escape or is somehow involved in the cleanup. The effects were profound. 15% of the kids report agoraphobia, meaning they're afraid to go outside. 12% um, reported separation anxiety, 8% depression. Over 11% met the seven tests of post-traumatic stress disorder, 75,000 children. And those are the most severely impacted. 76% of the children said they thought regularly about what happened at the Trade Center. My five-year-old does. 45% uh, of them reported trying not to think about the Trade Center because it came into their minds so often. 24% reported sleeping problems, 17% regularly have nightmares about it. So there are lessons for us as well, and that's obviously a lot of what we're all trying to deal with in counseling and teacher training and in coordinating with our mental health providers to deal with this issue. 
But I guess what I want to conclude with in this, as we think about this, is all of these choices, the economic choices, how do we balance economic growth and social justice, the political choices, how do you make decisions fairly but effectively, the social choices, how do you reconcile the tragedy of this past and the promise of the future, which is what New York and that site has always been about, and even the therapeutic and social, how do you heal those wounds without losing those lessons. Great peoples make wise decisions, but only just peoples prevail for long periods of time. This is the moment for us to prove whether we are a great or a mediocre people, and whether we will last for a long time or not. Wordsworth said, grieve not, but find strength in what remains behind. Um, That's what we are all trying to do. I think that's good lessons for us all uh, as we think about how to go forward. Thanks. When I saw I was going to be last, I knew I would either have everything already said in front of me or I'd have to take on everybody. And knowing the people that I'm dealing with, including one particularly closely, I also knew I wouldn't have much time to do either. So um, let me just very quickly, (laughs) very quickly run through the principles, I think, that ought to be looked at when... uh, examining how we go forward, and I think you did a wonderful job of of explaining uh, the various models by which we might make choices. Um, But there are three things I want to mention, actually four, but two are connected to each other. One is, let's not take for granted the current institutional arrangements. Uh, We ought to be looking at institutional arrangements as well as uh, the physical arrangements. Two, and these are very closely related, what kind of feasible lower Manhattan do we want to see? And two, directly connected, how much are we willing to spend on transportation infrastructure? And you can't answer the first without answering the second. And the third, um, and I sort of hate to say this, but there's a certain amount I think that should be thought about. Don't just do something, stand there. Let's not get in a hurry. Um, um, And as far as decision models are concerned, one of the things I learned at the school is there's a good deal to be said for disjointed incrementalism. Um, So let's let's go to the first. Um, uh, And I hope I don't offend Tony here because he did a terrific job at the Port Authority. But the World Trade Center is gone. We can argue as to whether it was a economic. Uh, uh, urban planning and aesthetic value or mistake. Uh, personally, being here, even within this Yamasaki building, I think at least it was an aesthetic mistake. Uh, but it's gone. Uh, it's not clear to me. The Port Authority still owns the land. Larry Silverman, who was the uh, real estate developer that uh, leased the Port Authority on a 99 year lease just two months, at least the World Trade Center, just two months before the disaster. Uh, still has a role and he's trying to collect insurance. But I don't think either of those bodies, either Larry Silverman or the Port Authority, really should be in charge of this exercise. Um, I have some views that the Port Authority should get out of everything but the uh, Hudson River Crossing business anyway, uh, including getting out of the airport business. But that, that that's another time that Tony and I can have a, a full-scale debate. Um, 
there is a need for regional planning. Obviously, there is a regional plan association. There uh, ought to be a tri-state. There used to be the tri-state planning commission. The tri-state transportation commission still exists. Uh, but I don't think the Port Authority plays a role in trying, is, plays an important role in deciding what we do in Lower Manhattan. I think that is for us to decide. Um, the Lower Manhattan Development Corporation, uh, there, first of all, I, I commend the Empire State Development Corporation for moving in quickly, getting Maryland to stay, getting uh, American Express to stay, trying to create a sense of urgency to keep all of the small business owners down there. We, Heather and I had a, a couch being upholstered on September 11th in a, on a, in a shop on Reed Street, which we didn't see for months thereafter because, because of this. And all of that needed to be done. Um, I think the process of going forward uh, needs to be expanded beyond a board largely of businessmen and uh, uh, and uh, political friends of the governor. Uh, I don't mean that the board should be as bad, but I think there needs to be an awful lot of input before we go too far. Let's go to the second issue. The second issue is what kind of feasible lower Manhattan do we want to look at? Um, lower Manhattan has been long since went away as the primary business district of, uh, of New York. Um, financial fir services firms have been moving uptown for a long time with the merger of uh, J.P. Morgan into uh, Chase, which followed the merger of Chase into Chemical, which followed the merger of uh, Manny into Chemical. There are no, none of the mega banks are left downtown. Uh, though they still have enormous uh, infrastructure down there with the Chase and uh, Plaza and the J.P. Morgan building and the uh, um, and Solomon Smith Barney as uh, part of Citigroup uh, on the upper west corner of, of Lower Manhattan. Um, if we really want to make Lower Manhattan a terrific high-density business district again, then we have to spend billions on infrastructure. Um, as as uh, was said earlier, there, there are real problems down there. Uh, the system is not integrated. It's very difficult to get to Lower Manhattan if you're coming from Westchester or Connecticut uh, or from, from Long Island, at that matter. Uh, and it's a long subway ride from, uh, from the Bronx and, and Upper Manhattan and from Queens. Um, there are things you can do. Uh, one, you can build a Second Avenue subway. Two, you can uh, bring the Laura, uh, Long Island Railroad. Uh, my wife pointed out after a briefing she got several years ago that the perfect spot for the Long Island Railroad terminal is where the stock exchange was going to be built before, I think wisely, uh, uh, Mayor Bloomberg killed that project uh, in the last couple of weeks. Then you can try together a much better transportation center at the World Trade Center site to hook the subways in with the path. Um, you can depress uh, West Street, which is the, the highway that runs between uh, uh, the World Trade Center site and Battery Park City. Battery Park City's biggest problem has been West Street and the World Trade Center cutting it off from Manhattan. The total bill for all that 
Um, I was told by Gene Kalin, who's the chair of the uh, Citizen Budget Commission, is somewhere between 35 and $50 billion. Now, we don't spend money like that in this country domestically except to subsidize corporate farmers in the guise of saving the family farm. Um, I don't know where 35 to $50 billion is going to come from. I just don't see it in a long, long time. So I, I think there are things you can do. I think you certainly ought to depress West Street. You ought to take what advantage you can of using the site to better tie the subways and the, and the path together. Um, but I don't think that's in the cards. And I, what that implies to me is that a lower Manhattan that is going to end up to be less dense, more retail, more mixed. Um, there's Battery Park City, whatever you think about it aesthetically, it is, um, is a successful development and is, it appears to be even surviving in this terrible uh, terrible tragedy. So it's that's a successful residential business mix. And by the way, business is not going to go away. There's way too much first-class office space down there to be used at the, at, the, at the World Financial Center and at other investments around town. Another absolutely successful area is Tribeca, uh, which has not experienced a lot of public investment, but nevertheless is an exciting place to live that's full of small businesses. Its major problem is, like any neighborhood that gets hot in Manhattan, that only you have to be filthy rich to live there. Uh, so that's, that's a different issue of housing. Uh, so I think what the way we will be forced to go in lower Manhattan is to make it lower, less dense, more residential, more mixed. Um, I think we should spend our money to some extent in encouraging small businesses and so forth. But what I, we really saw to spend whatever we can on is the business of government, which is to provide the infrastructure. I just don't think that the Second Avenue subway and the, and the LIR are, are in the cards. And that leads me up to the final point, which is don't just do something, stand there. Uh, I don't really mean that. Uh, what I mean is that we ought to depress West Street, and we ought to fix that, and we certainly ought, we ought to build a monument. And we ought to put the street grid back through the current site, or most of it. And on the rest, plant grass. And then go through that messy democratic process of what comes next, which we can mold, which the, which the public sector can mold through zoning. Um, hopefully not a lot of financial incentives, because they cost a lot of money. Um, and see what comes. We don't need the office space. There's no reason to build even 50 or 70 story towers there right now because there's nobody to move into them. Um, so I think we should we should restore as much of life as we can, clean up, the, the site is now cleaned up, uh, do the transportation changes that, uh, that I've just mentioned, and then let a thousand flowers blow. Thank you. We have a few minutes left for um, questions and answers, so who would like to start? Yes, please. I'm a visit to uh, Ground Zero. I'm struck by the fact that a, uh, a traditional sort of building around, built just before World War I, was scorched. 
period, and the people were still working in it. My question is architectural. There isn't anybody who is an architect by a trainer. Is the day of the curtain wall skyscraper dead? And therefore, is it time, as Mr. Ruth has suggested, to think in terms of lower, less densely occupied structures? I'm no expert, but I don't. The building that everybody talks about standing well, the Cass Gilbert building on West Street, that has tile fireproofing on the columns rather than spray-on stuff. The cost of doing that today, I think, are just impossible. I don't think you can build buildings and expect them to withstand. You've got to stop the airplane. You can't save the building. But I do think certainly the tall building in Manhattan is not going to be a big thing for a while. I could add two comments. One, I think in general the building before 9-11 and after is still active in the discussions both for lower Manhattan and elsewhere. It's a green building in the sense of being more environmentally sensitive. The Doug Durst did one on 42nd Street. So I think there's a lot of focus on that. But they're expensive. I think you're totally correct. We're not going to go back to the Cass Gilbert here and use the economics. New York is never a cheap place. You're talking rents for building to get someone to do new construction, $80, $90, $100 a square foot. There's going to be the economic pressure of being able to have a building that's marketable. How that comes out in architecture, having a building that's green, that's more expensive, I don't think it's in the end of skyscrapers. But the large buildings, it will be that pressure, however that works out in architecture. But I think there will be some bland buildings, I'm afraid, that's still coming around. The cost is the bottom line for the anchor tenant. No builder is going to build unless he has an anchor tenant. The one building that's going ahead, right, is Larry Silverstein's, which is going to be over 50 stories, isn't it? Right. And that's Seven World Trade Center. And that's unique because of the Con Ed substation. Certainly there are only two substations, and with that one out, the only other one is over by the South Street Seaport. And that goes up, then that would have been accurate. That's a scary thought. So there's a tremendous pressure by Con Ed to get the substation up by next year. And that triggered a lot of events for Silverstein to go ahead and reconfigure Seven to go forward. And that's designed. They're still working out with the Port Authority, the detail, but that division is a green building. But that's atypical because of the insurance and the proceeds. The Port Authority is being considered as an anchor tenant. But as far as the broader market, I think the redevelopment for the World Trade Center site, one of the principles is that it will be market sensitive and driven. It will not be that put up under story building. Can I just take one last shot at that issue, though, for a second? And again, I have no answer to this, but I just want to put the question on the table. There's no question that the market is required to do all the construction. The market, as market forces as they stand, the logic that we just described is accurate, right? Because from the perspective of the individual developer, you don't have large, empty buildings anymore and carry them. Banks will let you do it. The Trade Center was empty for 10 years. It's a great white elephant, much condemned and occupied only by government agencies and other state, port authority, et cetera. It had the effect, and was much condemned by the local real estate industry for depressing prices in lower Manhattan. 
dramatically because somebody dumped 12 million square feet of space in the lower Manhattan market and it sat empty, which in any microeconomic analysis is going to drive prices down. That's why developers don't like it. That's why the development community will oppose large-scale development down here. The question I just want to put on the table is from a different public policy perspective, which is are depressed real estate prices in a core region of New York City necessarily bad for New York City? If the issue is attracting businesses to New York, if the issue is reducing the cost of doing business in New York, one of the single largest costs for businesses, besides our high-paid workers, and we will always have high-paid workers, and we deserve them, is the carrying cost of the space. Large amounts of vacant space will depress the price. The only one that will carry the cost of those buildings for years are, in essence, public sector subsidies, which is what the World Trade Center was and which other major developments are around the world, either by large governmental institutions, back or front, subsidized in some ways. If there is a public policy question on the table, what's the best thing for New York? It may be, it may be, that lowering occupancy costs for lots of prospective businesses may be in our interest, which may mean dumping space and keeping it vacant until the next business cycle may be something worth thinking about. Sure. Um, I think most of us up here probably take this as an assumption, but it may be interesting to other people um, um, not who have less familiarity with New York City um, with respect to the architectural issue of what's, what's the old stuff down in lower Manhattan versus the new stuff, curtain wall, good or bad, whatever. And that is one of the, one of the reasons that a lot of the uh, investment banks started 25 years ago moving uptown. Um, and one of the reasons Chase put in you know, a huge uh, uh, investment uh, on its own land in Chase Manhattan Plaza about 25 years ago. And one of the reasons that it sort of made sense, and certainly um, I think Rockefeller was, uh, was very influential in, in, the, in, the, in supporting the uh, World Trade Center development initially, is that the financial services uh, industry has certain kinds of space requirements that are extraordinarily difficult to retrofit into any of those attractive old buildings. Um, and, um, uh, and even if we do envision a lower Manhattan in the future that is much more mixed, uh, has you know, more, more of the newer buildings being somewhat lower, more open space, more residential, and so on and so forth, um, I would think that um, you would still want to make it a, a possible place for, um, uh, for financial services firms, especially given the fact that so much of their infrastructure, their common infrastructure, everything from the auditory trust company to the stock exchanges and so on are down there. And a huge proportion of the back offices of even these firms up in, in middle Manhattan at this point are in Brooklyn and in Jersey City and so on. So if you sort of assume that part of the mix is financial service companies of some kind, then you need either new buildings uh, or extraordinarily lowered rents in existing buildings that permit huge investments. Those, from an architectural standpoint, it's interesting that those buildings need, first of all, they need to have all the technology in the world. Second of all, they have to be, you have to be able to have technology both above and below the actual, uh, if you will, lived in and worked in space. Uh, basically, three stories in the World Trade Center for a trading floor. Um, uh, you have to have open lines of sight. Uh, you have to have unbelievable amounts of air conditioning because of the heat, at least with current technology, generated by having computer screens stacked 
side by side, you know, like about every four feet. Um, and I don't know how you build one of those buildings. I mean, build one of those trading floors uh, or anything like a trading floor um, uh, without some kind of curtain wall um, uh, architectural phenomenon. Because I mean, how how do you get the lines of sight, the depth uh, as big as possible? I mean, you know, uh, UBS went to Stanford to get as big as possible. They could build it up this way rather than uh, you know this way. Um, so, so I would I would guess even for that reason, uh, even if you were doing it as a plan process as opposed to a speculative real estate uh, uh, development process, uh, there will be more boxes downtown. I regret that the higher powers in the university have asked us not to go beyond 10.30 to interfere with other programming that is going on elsewhere because I'm sure that we could talk for um, uh, hours more. Um, but I do want to thank the panelists for their extraordinarily thoughtful um, observations about rebuilding Lower Manhattan. Thank you very much.